Uh, so thankful for those of you that have joined us today. If today is your first time visiting with us or the first time in a long time, we want to warmly welcome you. And uh, if you would like us to reach out to you sometime during the week, please take a moment to fill out a visitor's card and put it in a little box in the back. And uh, that'll be a way that we can reach out to you and connect with you. And uh, so if you do fill that out, we will plan to reach out to you. Just want to uh, make that clarification. We have a couple of announcements and then we'll have our opening scripture reading. Good morning. Uh, for those who don't know, we had a great lit conference yesterday. Um, we had a right around, I don't take the steam away from Pastor Josh, but we had about 120 sponsors and teams. We had a great group out yesterday. So um, just had a great time with that. But with a Looking at upcoming events, this Thursday we have the ladies meeting. Um, Saturday there is practice for the cantata. If you are part of that, just to help remind you, you have a practice on Saturday. And then next Sunday morning we have our Christmas cantata. There are, um, Pastor, correct me, there are some flyers to hand out for that um, on the welcome desk. So if you would like to give those to some of your neighbors, friends, or your family to come see your kids or uh, friends of the church perform, those are on the welcome desk. It'll be next Sunday morning. And in the evening, um, we have our annual business meeting. So I just want to encourage you guys to really be here to see what's going on, see where our budget's going to be at. Um, that would be next Sunday night. And then we have Baltimore Rescue Mission the following Tuesday. So we have a lot going on in the next couple of weeks, but exciting. Pastor Josh. I just want to thank all of you that volunteered. Some of you gave almost your entire day yesterday to help out, and others uh, brought supplies and different things. Thank you very much to make it a success. It would not have happened without the volunteers and this church body getting behind and making an impact with 13 different churches that ended up coming, and yeah, it was about 120-ish that were here, and I heard many good reports, so thank you for those of you that pitched in and helped out both in prayer in giving supplies and in physical labor of being here yesterday. So it is all very much appreciated. So thank you very much. Our opening scripture reading is found in Galatians chapter 4, starting with verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Our theme for worship today is let's joyful reflect on God's grace that provided our Savior. Please let's for a word of prayer. Ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we're such a richly blessed people and we recognize that we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are righteous in Christ, we are accepted in the Beloved. And there is nothing that we have done that has given us this position. There is nothing that we have done that makes us deservable of such a position. In fact, it is all a work of your grace. We are thankful for the redemptive work of Christ that removed our sin debts so we could be forgiven. We thank you for 
his triumph over death and the resurrection. We thank you for his righteousness imputed to us by faith alone. I pray that this morning as we open the word of God, as we sing hymns uh, of praise to you, as we listen to the word being opened, as we give of our tithes and our offerings, as you have abundantly blessed us, as we listen to those express worship to you in song, I pray that all of this would bring glory to you, would uplift and encourage us as your people. And I pray that this would be a wonderful, wonderful day of Christ-centered worship. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us for worship. Please stand with me. Open your hymn books to hymn number 196. 196. Angels, we have heard on high. We'll sing all four verses. Angels, we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echo back their joyous strains.
a few pages over to 227. Who is he in yonder stall? We'll sing all five verses, number 227.
please be seated as we turn our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6 and then verses 16 through 23. Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, 16 through 23. The scriptures say, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat Phares and Zerah of Thamar, and Phares begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Amminadab, and Amminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rechab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And moving over to verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of the Lit Conference yesterday. And uh, we're going to do some a uh, little bit different a cappella, which is not a company with piano. And the beginning of this song might kind of strike you as kind of strange, just Grant going ooh, ah, ooh. But uh, it's part of the arrangement. The whole idea is pointing to the Christ child. And so obviously in celebrating Christmas, we are focused on Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God the Prince of Peace.
said the night wind to the little lamb. Do you see what I see, what I see? Oh, way up in the sky, little lamb. Do you see what I see, what I see? A star, a star, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. With a tail as big as a kite. Wow. Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy. Do you hear what I hear, what I hear? Oh, ringing through the sky, shepherd boy. Do you hear what I hear, what I hear? A song, a song, high above the trees, with a voice as big as the sea with a voice as big as the sea. Wahoo! Said the shepherd boy to the mighty king. Do you know what I know, what I know? Oh, in your palace warm, mighty king. Do you know what I know, what I know? A child, a child, shivers in the cold. Let us bring him silver and gold. Let us bring him silver and gold. Wow. Ooh, wow. Said the king to the people everywhere. Listen to what I say, what I say. Oh, pray for peace, people everywhere. Listen to what I say, what I say. The child, the child, sleeping in the night. He will bring us goodness and light. He will bring us goodness and light. Goodness and light. Amen. Let's all stand and open our hymn books to number 194. We're going to sing Joy to the World. We'll sing the first two verses. Verse 3, we'll turn and greet our neighbors. Here we go. Sunday joy, repeat the Sunday joy, repeat it. 
singing our last song will be See the Christ. It will be in your blue book, number 174. 174, we'll sing all three verses. We're gonna sing the last verse a cappella. See the Christ, the Son divine, one with God before all time. Lay aside his robe of light, clutching not his equal right. See him as a servant born, taking on our human form. Make his humble mind your own, serve your brothers here below. See the Christ, the Son of Man, in obedience to God's plan, take for us a sinner's death, gasping out his final breath. Christ the Son alive in his radiant place above now exalted raised on high reigning from the Father's side see him take the greatest name Lord Please be seated.
Christ the Savior is born. Okay, thank you so much for that. And our children who are in junior church can be dismissed to the back for your class. And the rest of you, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and let's turn together to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and we are looking at verses 1 through 6 together. And then we'll skip down to verse 16. And some of you are sitting here going, why in the world are we starting with the genealogy of Christ from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 23? And I would say for the same reason, that's where Matthew started. So let's go ahead and read through this text. And I am excited about uh, what we will look at from God's word this morning. Matthew 1 verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Pharaoh's and Zerah of Tamar. And Pharaoh's begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nasan, and Nasan begat Solomon. And Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Verse 16, and Jacob begat Joseph the son of Mary, or the husband of Mary, not son, husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, And from David unto the carrying away in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was a spouse of Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The text in front of us is an absolutely amazing passage of Scripture. In fact, what is really unique about the text that we're looking at is this is the genealogy of Christ. Yet Matthew goes through great lengths to make it very clear that when he talks about the genealogy of Christ through Joseph, Joseph is not the father of Jesus. He makes that very, 
very clear. The language is unmistakable. And not only is it unmistakable in the text in front of us, it's repeated multiple times in the text in front of us. And he makes a note that this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that had been made several hundred years before this event actually unfolded. You might say, well, why in the world does Matthew take the time to record the genealogy of Christ through a man that has no biological connection to him at all? That's a great question, really, it is. But it's ultimately to draw our attention to two things. Number one, Jesus had no biological father because he's God in flesh, the incarnation. God, the son, taking on flesh at a point in time. So he's clearly emphasizing that. But he's also emphasizing the fact that Jesus Christ has legal right to the throne of his father, David, and is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and all the way down the list through the one who was his legal guardian, Joseph. And so Christ's genealogy through his guardian, Joseph, establishes the uniqueness of the incarnation, his legal right to the throne of David, his connection to Old Testament prophecies, while also highlighting some of the most scandalous names in the Old Testament who were a part of this story. One of the things that is both good and bad about history is that when we study history and people write what happened actually as it took place, there are lots and lots of stories that we bury our head in shame and go, that was a part of my ancestry. That was a part of my story. Every person in this room has somebody down the line that if you knew the story of their story, you would say, Woe is me. Even the Lord Jesus Christ had such a thing that could be stated. And what's very interesting about the text in front of us is that Matthew doesn't blush when he does this. He actually records the names of these women and they are the only women that he records in this passage of scripture. He never talks about Abraham's wife, Sarah. He never talks about Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and the question is why? He's making a point. And the point is really going to be the focus of what we're looking at this morning. God wants us to marvel at how good his ways are when all of our ways are indeed very bad. And so the first thing I want you to notice from the text in front of us is that we live in a very broken world. Now, I don't really have to like remind you of this every day, you know, just, just turn on the news. Just look on your phone. Just think about the things that are going on. Even within our church context this past week, we've had lots and lots of people who have ended up in the ER. There are lots of people who are sick right now. There are lots and lots of very difficult situations going on in our church right now. The fact is, these are all things that remind us that this is a broken world. It's a fallen world. But this is the world that we live in. And so as we read these verses, we see that highlighted or emphasized in these verses. By the way, the fact that God sent the Son into the world also highlights the fact that this is a broken world. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. By one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. 
When he says all have sinned, he's not emphasizing your individual sins. He's emphasizing the sin of our forefather, Adam, and in Adam all die. That's what the Bible is saying there. Even in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We live in a broken world. All the corruption that we see in this world was not a part of the original creation. It was a result of Adam's sin in the garden. And actually, it wasn't even the result of Eve's sin. It was the result of Adam's sin. Clearly, the Bible teaches. We live in this broken, messy world full of misery and evil. And these five names remind us of that. The first name that I want you to notice is the name Tamar. Now, this is a story that when we were going through our Old Testament narrative, as we were showing the, <clears throat> the story of the Old Testament, I just noticed that Answers in Genesis decided to skip over the story of Tamar. I can't imagine why they did that. Well, if you go and read the story in Genesis chapter 38, you'll understand why they didn't uh, teach the story to our four, five, and six-year-olds. It's because it's one of those stories that, in fact, a child has no concept of what's going on in that text. A lot of people are, are interested in knowing their ancestry, and so they, they do this Ancestry.com. And some of the people that have done their Ancestry.com have come to realize that the story that they were told does not meet the story that actually is about what it took for them to come into the world. I hate to say that, but it's true. They may find out that somebody that they thought was their grandfather actually wasn't their grandfather. They may find out that somebody that they thought that they were related to, they're actually not related to. These are the stories that we don't tell our children. These are the stories that we blush at and we think about them. In fact, this is one of the lowest points in the life of a man, jo uh, Jacob, whose family had a lot of low points, a lot of contention, a lot of drama, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow. Yet this woman, Tamar, was the mother of one of the men whose names are recorded in the genealogy of Christ. Maybe to state it another way, if that person had not been born, then the story would have had a completely different outcome. Think about that for a moment. It's a fascinating consideration. You say, well, did God want this man to sin as he did? The answer is, of course not. But God is sovereign, and he uses all things to accomplish his purposes. And this is a great example of such a thing. The second name that we see in the text that I want you to notice is the name of a woman named Rahab. And we know the story of Rahab. Now this one we do often talk about, but again, there are things about the story that we kind of, we go past very quickly when we are talking to our children about them. But I want to read to you plainly what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 verse 31 about this woman Rahab. It says, by faith Rahab, the harlot, perished not with them that believed not. When she had received the spies with peace. Now that's one of those stories when you read it in the Old Testament and you pause to digest the details, you ask yourself a couple of questions. Number one, why did the spies go to that house? I mean, it's a fair question, is it not? Number two, understanding what we know about this woman. Why did she fear God? You ever thought about that one? Understanding what we know about that, we move on to the next question of, 
out of all the people that God could have spared in the city, why her? Why not someone else? The fact is that this is what God chose to do. The lone surviving family of a condemned city, the very first city that was destroyed in that land when the nation of Israel came to to take their possession that God had given them, the very first city that every single piece of material from the city was to be destroyed, the very same city when Achan kept goods and hid them in his tent, his family died because he chose not to destroy the contents of the city. God saved a woman. And God saved every person that chose to enter into her house and stay in that house while all the carnage went on around them. There's even more to it than that. This woman, Rahab, not only survived, but she became a part of the Jewish community. And she not only survived and became a part of the Jewish community, she married into the Jewish community. And she married a man who would ultimately be the father of someone in the lineage of Christ. Is that not an absolutely stunning thing to behold? We move on to a third name. And that's the name Ruth. And I'm excited because we're going to actually be going through the book of Ruth uh, on Sunday nights. Not this Sunday. We'll finish Judges tonight. But then we're going to move into the book of Ruth. I think the book of Ruth is one of the most wonderful stories in all of the Bible. It's a beautiful book. But as you read through the book, there are also some details that are pretty dark. They're very sad. They're shocking. And in Ruth chapter 1 verse 15, listen carefully to what Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her as she was leaving Moab and going back to Judah to Bethlehem. This is what the text says. Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people. And listen to the next statement. And unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Did you catch that? Your sister-in-law has returned to her people and to her idols. And I'm encouraging you to go and do that like her. Isn't that kind of stunning to think about? Naomi was telling her to go back to her idolatry. It does not appear that at this point in Naomi's life, she's someone with a strong faith, does it? Well, she's actually not. Because when she goes back to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I am bitter and I'm bitter and the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. And she's a very broken woman. She's a discouraged woman. She thinks that there's no hope. But that's not the end of the story. Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. I love this next statement. Thy God, my God. Now, I don't think that she loved Israel's God because Naomi was giving her a great example at this moment. She recognized the distinction between the idols of Moab and the God of Israel. She says, where thou diest, will I die? There will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. I guess another way to put that is, when she realized her mind was made up and there was nothing she could do to change her mind, she said, all right, come with me. 
What I love about this story is that Ruth is a part of the story of the genealogy of Christ. Because Ruth marries Boaz. And Boaz, Boaz has a child, or she has a child by Boaz, who ultimately is a part of the lineage of Christ. Now this is also very intriguing. This man Boaz was also, his, I believe it was his grandmother, was Rahab. There's a reason he was willing to take this woman Ruth to be his wife when the reality is that when the opportunity came to someone else, he said, not a chance. I'm not going to marry a Gentile. I'm not going to marry a Moabitess. I don't want to raise up a child in the name of my brother. Not a chance. And so Ruth's name is recorded in these, th- these verses. A very lonely widow who experienced God's restoration. I love the scripture in the Psalms where it says that God is a father to the fatherless. He is a judge of the widows. God has compassion on people in these kinds of places. And so while Ruth is a beautiful story, it's actually a very painful story that is beautiful because of how God works in it. But then there's a fourth. This one's not too beautiful. It's the story of Bathsheba. Rather than going into the details, because most of us know them, I'm just going to read to you what Nathan the prophet says to David after he has concealed his sin and he has fought against God for a year and God has to confront him. Here's what it says. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, And Nathan said unto David, Thou art the man. In other words, you're the guy I'm talking about in the parable. The one who has abused his neighbor, abused his authority, taken someone else's lamb. You're the person I'm talking about, David. The one that you say should die, that's you. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Thou hast taken his wife to be thy wife. Hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house. Because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. Now, did God overlook the sin of David? No. But did God say, David, there's no way I could ever take good and accomplish good out of this thing? The answer is, no, he didn't do that. In fact, God chose out of all the children that David fathered, he chose that the lineage of Christ would come through Solomon, the son of this woman, Bathsheba. And so what does God do? God punishes David. There are consequences for David's action. This is one of the, 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 the darkest moments, not just in David's life, but in all of Scripture. One of the greatest abuses of power in this story. Yet God still was able to bring good out of such tremendous evil. There is no person that has such ability save God himself. And then we see the story of Mary. The truth is, this is a unique kind of suffering that Mary experienced because the reality is that everybody living at the time of Mary and Joseph would have assumed that Mary had been either unfaithful to Joseph 
or that Mary and Joseph had entered into marriage having already been involved in fornication. That would have been the assumption of every single person that lived with them, their family, everybody. When, when Mary and Joseph say, well, actually, this baby Jesus is not Joseph's son, they would say, oh, really? Well, then whose son is it? And they say, well, you don't understand. She was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. They're like, really? Yeah, yeah, I, exactly, exactly. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. They go, yeah, exactly. We've heard this story before. And you know what? Mary had to deal with that. Joseph had to deal with that. They had to deal with a lot of talk about them in their community. They had to deal with a lot of stigmatization. And the fact is that this woman, Mary, when she says, I will, I will embrace God's will for me in this situation. There was a side to this that you and I do not consider because of the culture that we live in, the time in which we live, and because we do not consider the intricate details of this passage of Scripture. There's another side to this too. Not just that, but the fact is this woman, Mary, is going to one day be seated in front of a cross and she's going to be looking up at her son. And she's going to watch him suffer in agony and bleed and die. Now, I don't know how many people in this room could actually sit in front of a, a Roman cross from 2,000 years ago and look at that and look at the kind of suffering that was being experienced physically by a person hanging on that cross and just be able to walk away without that not haunting us. I don't think I could. Maybe you could. Maybe you've experienced some very difficult things and you say, I, I could handle that. But this is her child. This is the one she rocked in her arms. This is the one that she taught how to walk. This is the one that she nursed all those many, many months. This is the one that she took to synagogue. She understands who Jesus is because of the Old Testament prophecies and because of the communication of the angels. She understands those things, but it does not change the fact that this is her child. And so it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 33, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto him, Mary, his mother, behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many in Israel for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, and the thoughts of many shall be revealed. Do you see what he's saying? It's wonderful what Jesus will accomplish, but to get there is a lot of suffering. Second thing I want you to notice is that this broken world is governed by an infinitely wise and powerful God. Not that we haven't kind of already seen this, but we want to see it again. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. When we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4, verse 4. When the fullness of the time was come. By the way, that little phrase, when the fullness of the time was come, tells us something about what's going on. It's not just about the event, and it's not just about the implication of the event, but it's about the unfolding of the event itself as well. In other words, it was not just what Jesus did, but it's how God brought it to pass. The fullness of the time. God was working a plan. 
And that is even drawn out in the genealogy in front of us. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Ye are not sons, or you, because, and, and because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son unto your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And this next word is important. His ways, his ways past finding out. You know what that means? That means that when you watch how God works, what you can understand is just a little piece of it. Just a little piece of it. Now that little piece you get is pretty amazing. It's pretty awesome. But the way that God works, in fact, it is, it's beyond our full comprehension. He says, unsearchable are his ways, his ways past finding out. Who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? The extent to which you and I understand what God is doing is really dependent on what he reveals. God is able to take the broken pieces of this world and weave together a beautiful story. And I just want to say it this way. Jacob's family was filled with rivalry, deceit, immorality, and bitterness. Yet none of that thwarted God's ultimate plan. Am I saying those things didn't matter? Not a chance. (laughs) I'm not saying that. Are we saying they weren't responsible? No. Are we saying that God caused them to do it? No. We're saying God used it. God accomplished his purpose. All of the things that went on, God allowed it to still accomplish a plan. And nothing was thwarted by what was going on in these dysfunctional families. Rahab city was filled with idolatry. She made her living through the dishonoring of her own body. Yet God rescued her from that life of misery and planted her in the story of redemption. Naomi's family left Bethlehem, the house of bread, for Moab because Judah was experiencing an intense famine. By the way, because of the times of the judges, because of all the idolatry in the land of Judah, she goes to to Moab, her boys marry idolatrous women, and a a few years later, she returns to the land of her fathers, a broken widow with her Moabite daughter in laws because her sons had died. Yet God used these broken vessels to write a glorious story. David committed the most treacherous sin imaginable, murdering one of his most valiant soldiers to cover his treacherous adultery. And yet God in his mercy spared David's life, allowed him to father a child through Bathsheba who would be a part of the lineage of Christ. Only God could turn this kind of misery into glory. Third thing I want you to notice is that he delights in displaying his greatness through unlikely candidates and circumstances. 1 Corinthians 1.25, it says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Did you catch that? That's, a, that's an amazing statement. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. You take the smartest guy you've ever met in your life, and he doesn't even, doesn't even come close to the wisdom of God. The weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Another way to put that is, God chooses to work through the people and to work through the circumstances that the average person goes, that person could never be used by God. That situation could never bring glory to God. There's absolutely no way God would want to work through that person. And God says, oh yeah, let me show you what I can do. That's what God does. He confounds the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, the base things of the world, the things which are despised hath God chosen, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's what the genealogy of Christ is all about. That verse right in front of us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He says, I don't use the gold platter. I use the clay. He's talking about us. By the way, it's a little funny. He talks about a clay pot because that's really what we're made out of. Adam was shaped out of the dirt. And when we die, our bodies will return to the dust. Yet we will be with God forever. What an amazing consideration. Each person mentioned in this text was an unworthy vessel for such a noble purpose. But I ask this question. Did he have better examples? Did he have better options? Who were the great people that were fit to be in such a story? Well, there weren't any. These are the ones he chose to work through. We are all in the same position. We are broken and sinful. We live lives full of pain and sinful choices. Yet you know what? God works through them. And he he works through us too. Every single one of us, if we were to stop and and we could step back and examine our lives, not, not us on the good days, but us on the dark days. And then we think about how much God has blessed us. And we think about how kind God's been to us. And we think about the things God has accomplished through our lives. That we are not worthy to be able to partake in such things. The things that we witness. The things that we enjoy. Guess what? There's encouragement in these verses for us, isn't there? The fourth truth. Don't worry, it's not the fourth of eight. The incarnation displays his greatness and his goodness. Romans 5.8 God commendeth his love toward us. That means that God took his love, which you and I can't fully comprehend. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says, I pray that you might know the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of God, which surpasses all understanding. That's what he says. And so God says, let me show you a little glimpse into the love that I have for people. I commended it through Christ dying for the sins of humanity. That's what he says. God's grace was overwhelmingly displayed in both the big picture, what he was accomplishing in this thousand year, well, I say thousand, multi-thousand years of, of history. But you know what he was also accomplishing and showing us his greatness in the little details as well. The fact is he met David where he was. He met Ruth where she was. He met these people where they were and he continued to work in their lives. The story of Jacob is a a stunning story because throughout almost all of Jacob's life history, he was a very rebellious and a very stubborn and a very treacherous person. 
I mean, over the hundred plus years that he lived, the vast majority of those years were lived in treachery. He was a conniving person. He was a manipulator. He was someone who did a lot. And by the way, the troubles in his family, they were the result of the kind of father he was. The result of the kinds of decisions that he made, the way that he related to his children, all of the rivalry and the contention, that's what happens when people make choices like this. But guess what? God loved Jacob. God called him Israel. He changed his name to say, you're a prince with God. Not the trickster and the traitor, which he most certainly was. But he says, my grace is going to take the trickster and the betrayer and I'm going to turn him into a prince. I'm going to establish his descendants as a nation. And I'm going to bring the creator of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, incarnate into the world through his family. It's like, wow. This is the way God works. God's love is displayed. His benevolence is displayed to very wretched people. God's power as sovereign, as ruler, is overwhelmingly displayed by his ability to manage the most complicated situations you can imagine. The truth is there there are a lot of times in life we look at a situation, we go, okay, I could do this or I could do this. Choice is very clear. I need to do this. If I do this, it's not going to be good. But sometimes we look at this and this and this and this and this and we go, none of them are great options. None of them are great options. They all are complicated. They're all complex. What am I supposed to do? You know what God does? God takes the very best possible course of action considering all the details. And he works through it. And you and I don't have the ability to be able to process all that data and say to God, you're wrong. We don't. We don't have the right to do such a thing. You say, well, pastor, what are your final thoughts? Let me give you these in closing. God wants us to marvel at how good he is. Not because God just likes getting all the credit. It's because, I mean, is there any other way to respond to such a great God? Such a good and kind God? Is there any other appropriate way to respond to him? The answer is, of course not. The gospel is his story, not our story. We get to receive the benefits of it, but it's about what he did for us, not what we do for him. It's about what he gives to us because of what he purchased for us. It's a beautiful story because it reminds us repeatedly of God's ways and why he sent his son into the world to accomplish our redemption. It reminds us he is honest and good and wise and infinitely powerful and patient and kind. And so I ask the question, I know the vast majority of you here today are believers. You understand the gospel. You've placed your faith in Christ alone. There might be someone who has it. I don't know. There might be someone who's joining us on the live stream this morning. And you said, well, I, you know, I, I hear they're celebrating Christmas at Anchor. And I, I haven't been to church in 20 years, but I'll go ahead and I'll just tune in and I'll see what happens. I'd be really interested to know what they talk about this Sunday. And you go, I'm not a Christian. I've never placed my faith in Christ. I, I never thought about this before. I never thought about the implications of what it took to bring Christ into the world and what he accomplished. And none of this has ever made sense before to me. And today, for the first time, I've understood this. Well, then trust in it. Place your faith in Christ. What's holding you back from depending on his work alone for salvation? Have you embraced the gospel? 
most of us are Christians. And so I ask this question, do you love God? Do you love God proportionately to how good he is? How kind he's been? How gracious he's been to you? Do you trust him unreservedly with the details of your life? You know, a lot of Christians say, I can trust God for salvation, you know, heaven and hell, but I can't trust him with my little problems today. I go, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. There's like eternity here or here. You can make the decision to trust him here. But then this other situation, you're like, well, I don't think he knows what's going on here. <laughs> Christ died for you. Look at this story and ask yourself the question, how could you not trust a God who can bring good out of that? That's what it's all about. Do you rest in his purposes? Let's glory in him, in his ways, and what he's done in our lives. Let's bow for prayer. Before we close in prayer, I'm going to ask a simple question. Is there anybody here this morning that would say, Pastor Joel, I've never understood the gospel the way that it was described today. And I need to trust Christ. And I need to talk to somebody about that. I'm, I'm concerned about my salvation. Is there anybody here that would just quietly in this moment raise your hand and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I'm not going to call you by name because I don't know your name. I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle. I'm going to simply take a note of it so I can reach out to you and speak with you. If there's anybody here when the service closes and folks are heading out and they're greeting who doesn't know the Lord is their Savior and needs to talk to somebody about that, just hang back and say, hey, Pastor, I need to talk to you about salvation. I don't understand that. I need to understand what the Bible says about how I can be saved. There might be somebody here this morning that you're saved, but the fact is you came into this building very discouraged, very doubtful of God's ways, and you really needed to hear this. So I want to encourage you, if God's working in your heart, just, just respond to him in the, a way that you appropriately should in this quiet moment. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, as we think about what it took to give us a Savior, and what the fulfillment of all these prophecies reveals, the implications, I pray that we would not get over that. That we would be overwhelmed by the greatness of your ways. And we would be overwhelmed by the goodness of your ways. And the kindness of your ways. And we would be so warmed in our hearts by how personal this story is. Because it not only tells us how you worked in their lives, but it tells us that you worked in their lives not just for their sake, but for ours. And so I pray that you will take the word and use it in our hearts this morning. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen. If you could, let's pull out our hymn books, please. We're seeing one of my all-time favorites right here. 156, how can it be? How can it be? We're going to sing all three verses. Let's stand together, please. Let's really sing it out. Think about the implications of the word. Oh, Savior, as my eyes behold the wonders of thy mind, untold the heavens.
good, good song. I uh, want to remind you, please come back tonight and uh, join us as we continue. Well, it's the last uh, message in Judges before we move into Ruth. I um, also want to mention next Sunday is our Christmas cantata. And uh, because it's our Christmas in, uh, cantata, uh, we do have some invitations out there at the, um, the welcome desk. And so I hope that you'll uh, take the time to invite folks out to that. I know it's a busy time of the year, and I know there's a lot of sickness that's been going around. So uh, just pray that everyone uh, will be healthy and able to be here. And uh, just pray that everything comes together very smoothly for that. But that is a really, really great opportunity to invite folks out. And uh, it will be a gospel-centered uh, service. The, the cantata is going to be really, really good. The choir specials are just beautiful, beautiful choir specials. And I also want to mention this year, because of when Christmas falls, Christmas Eve is going to be on a Sunday night, and New Year's Eve is on a Sunday night. And uh, so Sunday night of Christmas Eve, we will not have a 6 o'clock. It'll be 7 o'clock, because we traditionally do our Christmas Eve at 7 o'clock. So mark that in your calendars. Keep that in your mind. And uh, if, you, if you come at 6, great, but it'll be dark, and uh, you'll be waiting uh, for people to show up. And that is always a great, great uh, service, a lot of beautiful music. It's very Christ-centered. The gospel's going to be given. And uh, kids get candy canes and uh, oranges. That's my favorite part. All right, I love the candy canes and the oranges. Uh, so please make sure that you uh, mark those things on your calendar, and uh, it'll be a really great time. Also, I want to mention that uh, the Cranes welcomed a little baby girl yesterday, and so uh, while we were having the lit conference, they were having a child. So uh, we're thankful for everyone doing well with that. There is a, a meal train out there, so jump on the meal train and, and uh, get them some food. And and actually, Victoria's the one who usually sends that out. So let's make sure that she um, is not forgotten when now she is in the position to be, uh, to be blessed in that way. So, Cheryl Neese, can you please come and close us in a word of prayer? And great to have each of you here this morning. Keep one another in prayer as uh, we've had you know, quite a few folks who've had injuries, sicknesses, lots and lots of uh, challenging situations. So please be in prayer for our church family with that. And also, before I forget too, um, if you would like to uh, place a poinsettia in honor of or in memory of someone, um, we, we are not publishing that, that bulletin for another week. So if you want to do that, please do uh, send in your check. These are $18, which is cost. And um, if you just want to donate, that's fine too. But um, I want to uh, remind you of that. We will publish that, Lord willing, next week when we have our cantata. But if you'd like to do that, please don't forget that. Cheryl. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for being the wonderful God that you are. And Lord, just thank you for using us. As broken as we are and as fallen as we are, yet you still look on us and watch, watch over us and guide us and use us to fulfill your will. We just praise you, Lord, for the, how awesome you are. Lord, I thank you for this service that we've had. I thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, I ask that you be with us during the rest of the day. Bless us, guide us, and lead us, and we thank you for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.